Well, good morning again. Let me again say how good it is to see each one of you. Also, I want to commend you very strongly for this outpouring of food that you uh, have produced this morning. This is just one service. We have another service to go. The goal was to fill this up so that there wouldn't be any room for me to preach. Um, you probably should have come to the second service because if they fill it up, then we're just not going to have a, a sermon. So those are the lucky guys, right? Uh, it, it occurs to me that um, this is a more eloquent and powerful sermon than I could ever hope to preach. Uh, what you have done this morning uh, speaks volumes about your care and concern and love for people who are in unfortunate circumstances right now. And the cool thing about this sermon is, is the sermon will keep on being preached. Because every time that we hand out a box of food, every time we hand out a bag of food, uh, that preaches another sermon. It preaches a sermon to people that God actually does love them, that God actually is concerned about them, that God's people um, has care and concern for them. Each one of those bags of food is a bit of salt and a bit of light going out into the world. And so it's in God's name, it's in Jesus' name that we're able to feed the hungry in our community. And you've been a big part of that this morning, and I want to thank all of you for that. Um, someone asked me to do something this morning, and so I just want to say to Nyla Guernsey, someone loves you very much, and they want everybody to know that today's your birthday, so uh, happy birthday to you. Let's pray as we get started. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all your blessings. Father, we thank you for this great outpouring of generosity uh, that we have witnessed this morning. Father, we know that that generosity is motivated by your love of us, our love of you, your love of people who are in difficult circumstances, and our love of people who are in difficult circumstances. And my prayer is, Father, that your name will be glorified because of what has happened here this morning. That, Father, that your light will be shined out into a dark world because of what has happened here this morning. And, Father, I thank you for the generosity of the people at Netherwood Park. And, Father, I know it shouldn't amaze me, but it continues to amaze me. And I thank you for that. I pray this. Through your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So we come to the fourth and final sermon in a four-part series out of the book of Habakkuk. A little series out of a little book. Uh, We've been looking at the faith of Habakkuk. About Habakkuk demonstrates to us how you can have faith in the midst of difficult times. How you can have faith in the midst of questions, in the midst of confusion and how that we can build and strengthen our faith. In the first week, we looked at how Habakkuk, who was living and serving in Judah, was very concerned about the state of the world around him. He was concerned about the injustice. He was concerned about the strife. He was concerned about the violence that he saw and that marked the life in Judah. He was concerned about the way that God's chosen people had chosen to run after the pagan gods the pagan gods of Assyria and Egypt. And he was concerned because they'd chosen to engage in the detestable practices of the countries that surround them. So we saw how Habakkuk, in deep despair over the state of his world, had continually beseeched God to do something about the sin and evil that he saw in Judah. And we saw how Habakkuk, in his growing impatience, had cried out to God. He'd cried out to God and said, How long, O Lord, Must I call out for help, but you do not save? And we learned that just as God welcomed 
and answered Habakkuk's questions then about the state of his world, God welcomes and answers the questions that we have about the state of our world. But we also learn that the answers to our questions may be very different from what we might expect. Just as God's answers to Habakkuk's questions caught the prophet off guard and left him deeply confused. Just as Habakkuk had to accept that God would choose the violent and godless Babylonians to achieve his will in dealing with Judah's sin, we have to be willing to accept that God often chooses to accomplish his purposes in ways and through events and people that we would never expect. So we learned in week two that human logic is often the enemy of complete faith and trust in God. It's the enemy of complete faith and trust in God because his ways are not our ways. And he is not constrained by our logic. And he's not constrained by our understanding. And then last week, we saw that Habakkuk dealt with his confusion by remembering, by rehearsing the mighty acts of God from the past. And we learned that looking back at what God has accomplished in the past can confirm and strengthen our belief and faith that God is working in our time and that God will continue his active involvement in the future. So last week we left Habakkuk. We left Habakkuk with an unshakable belief that God was alive, an unshakable belief that God was active, and an unshakable belief that God was prepared to do exactly what he had promised he was going to do. But what God had promised to do was to bring destruction on Judah. God had promised to bring catastrophe for Judah. God had promised a coming crisis for Habakkuk personally and for Judah as a country. And God had promised that the Babylonians were coming. They were on Judah's doorstep and defeat for Judah was certain. So I think it's important to understand what Judah and Habakkuk were facing. This wasn't your run-of-the-mill crisis. This was complete and utter defeat. This was a mirror image of what had happened to Israel. Military defeat followed by deportation of the people and destruction of the most important cultural and religious sites and symbols in the country. So I want to give you just a taste of what actually occurred in Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. A glimpse of the crisis that was precipitated by Judah's sin. Because I think it's important that we understand that what God promised was going to happen to Judah did actually happen to Judah. So I'll be reading some excerpts from the book of 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25. So if you want to turn there, 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25, where we read what the Babylonians actually did to the country of Judah. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 25. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. 
Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Then we'll skip forward eight years to 597 B.C. I'll be reading out of chapter 24 still, but now in verse 10. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and fighting men, and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people were left. Skip ahead nine more years. 588 B.C., I'll be reading out of chapter 25 and verse 1. There's a new king, Zedekiah. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month of the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, I can't pronounce that, that guy, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Do you remember what God said to Habakkuk? He said, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. And raise them up, he did. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians swept in, defeated Judah, exported their best and brightest, removed all the treasures and installed a series of puppet kings to keep peace in Judah and to continue to export the riches and talent that were produced in Judah. Each of these puppet kings became emboldened at some point and rebelled against Babylon. 
Then they had their rebellion put down, and the rebellions were put down with ever-increasing severity until finally Nebuchadnezzar lost his patience during Zedekiah's revolt, and he finally put an end to Judah, and he put an end to Jerusalem. Siege, famine, destruction, looting, the killing of the king's children in front of him, and then immediately blinding him. So the last image that he would have would be of his children dying in front of him. No wonder Habakkuk had asked, why them? No wonder Habakkuk's heart pounded, his lips quivered, decay crept into his bones, and his legs trembled as he looked ahead to the coming crisis at the hands of the Babylonians. And that is also why it is remarkable that even when faced with the coming catastrophe, Habakkuk responded to God with an amazing expression of joy and an amazing expression of hope. You see, after the questions had been answered, how long until you deal with Judah's sin? Not long, Habakkuk, because the Babylonians are on the way. After the confusion had been dealt with, surely you don't mean the Babylonians, because we both know that the Babylonians are even worse than the people of Judah. Yes, Habakkuk, the Babylonians, but they too will be dealt with. Even after assurance has been, has been given, your people, O Lord, won't die. You're right, Habakkuk, this isn't the end. My people will survive. My purposes will win out. After faith has been strengthened by remembering and by rehearsing God's mighty works from the past, by remembering the God of creation, that the God of Noah, the God of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, of Joshua, and of David is still working in mighty ways. After fear has been acknowledged about what is coming, God will keep his promise. Judah's sin will be dealt with. The crisis won't be averted. After all of that, Habakkuk teaches us one final lesson. And it's a lesson about rejoicing in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. And that's our key point this morning. It's that we can't always rejoice in our circumstances, but we can always rejoice in our Lord. See, Habakkuk teaches us that lesson in a beautiful song. A beautiful song of hope and joy. Let's read again from Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 through 19. This is Habakkuk's song. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. There's nothing about the coming circumstances to celebrate. There's nothing in which to derive pleasure. There's no reason for Habakkuk to rejoice in the coming crisis. Because everything will be lost. The most, the most basic necessities will be taken away. Everyone's going to be poor. All will be destitute. Most will lose their homes and be deported to a foreign country. 
But still, Habakkuk is able to sing a song of hope and joy. And the secret is that Habakkuk finds his joy and hope in his Lord. Not in the circumstances that surround him and affect him. So what can we learn from Habakkuk's story as we seek to find joy and as we seek to find hope even in the midst of crises? I want us to focus on four lessons that we can learn from Habakkuk and then four ways that we can apply those lessons in our lives today. The first thing I think we need to make sure we all understand is that truly horrible things do happen in this world. We all need to know that like Habakkuk, we, fit, we live in a broken and fallen world. We live in a world where bad things happen. Accidents occur. Diseases are diagnosed. Loved ones die. Jobs are lost. Betrayals occur. And the list could go on and on. We too, like Habakkuk, live in a world that often doesn't make sense. Good things often happen to bad people. And bad things often happen to good people. But it's really important also that we understand the second lesson that we learned from Habakkuk. And that lesson is this. It's that our personal circumstance is not a sign of God's favor or disfavor. You see, in Judah, the righteous suffered right beside the idol worshipers. God's faithful servant Habakkuk suffered along with the unrighteous. It's tempting to make our personal circumstances a test of whether or not we are in God's favor. Kind of like the playing the game of he loves me, he loves me not. Remember that with the flowers? He loves me. He loves me not. I'm in good health. God loves me. I've been diagnosed with an illness. He loves me not. I got a promotion. He loves me. I got laid off from my job. He loves me not. Or to hear some preachers on TV tell it, I got a parking place close to the front at the mall. He must love me. Or my door got dinged at the mall. He must not love me. But that simply isn't the way that God works. It's not the way he works in our world, and it ignores the fact that there are other forces that are working our world. Some of those forces are natural forces, and some of those are forces of evil. To help us understand this point and the next two points as well, let's all turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll start with verse 31. Listen to these words written by Paul. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul offers a ringing endorsement for what Habakkuk understood. That bad times will come. Crises will be encountered. But through it all, God will be faithful to those who love him. God loves you and is working for you in the midst of good times. And he's working for you in the midst of bad times. And that brings us to the third point, And it's this. We all need to understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Habakkuk was able to rejoice in his Lord in the midst of personal and national crisis because he understood that God had not deserted him and God had not deserted his people. And Paul confirms for us that in the midst of the most difficult situations we could possibly face, God is still with us. And God still loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that brings us to our final point. It's something we don't learn from Habakkuk. And we don't learn it from Habakkuk because the event was still several hundred years in the future for Habakkuk. But we who live after the event can't help but understand. And we can't help but appreciate that the, crowd, that the cross is the ultimate demonstration that God is on our side. If you have any doubts that God loves you, let me suggest that you look at the cross. If you have any doubts about whether or not God wants what is best for you, look at the cross. If you have any doubts that God is working for you, look at the cross. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Habakkuk was able to find joy and hope in God because he had absolute faith that God was on the side of those who love God. How much more can those of us who live in the shadow of the cross rejoice and find hope in the God who we love And who made it clear at the cross how much he loves us. So in our final few minutes, I want us to draw a few applications for us. A few final applications from Habakkuk that we can put into practice as we live our life here and now in this world. The first application is this. Don't wait for a crisis to discover your faith. Habakkuk was able to find joy and hope in the Lord, not because he found his faith in the midst of crisis, but because he had unshakable faith going into the crisis. Once more, I want to encourage you to re-examine the mighty works of God in the past. I want to encourage you to open your eyes to the mighty works of God that are going on in our world today 
and that are going on in your life today. And I especially want to encourage you to strengthen your faith as you look at the cross. Strengthen your faith so you too can find joy and hope in the crisis that you will face. Second application is this. Don't wait for a crisis to start talking to God. We often have an unfortunate tendency to wait until things go bad to turn to God in prayer. Sometimes I think we treat God like a 911 operator. There's a crisis, I better call God. Hopefully I can remember the number. We should all, like Habakkuk, be in constant contact with God through prayer. If we're talking to him in good times, we'll find it much easier to talk to him in bad times. If we're rejoicing with him in the good times, we'll find it much easier to rejoice in him in the bad times. Talk to God. Talk to your Father who loves you and wants to have a conversation with you. Third application is this. Don't wait for a crisis to start listening to God. God still speaks. God still speaks to his people today. He speaks through his word. He speaks through the Bible. He speaks through his faithful servants. God speaks through us to each other with words of encouragement and wisdom. And he speaks through his spirit, the spirit who lives in you. So I want to encourage you to listen to his voice. Listen for his voice. See, if we listen to him during the good times, we'll find it much easier to recognize his voice in the bad times. And finally, this. We should all surround ourselves with the righteous. Surround ourselves with God's people. Surround ourselves with Jesus' disciples. We need to stop trying to do life on our own. We need each other. And God has given us each other. It's important that we form those relationships now. And we form those relationships strongly and we form those relationships deeply. See, if we strengthen those bonds now, we'll be prepared when crisis hits. We won't have to go through it alone. Our brothers and sisters will be there to share our burdens. They'll be there to share our joy. They'll be there to share our hope in the Lord. I want you to know we can't do that just in church events alone. Not just in church attendance alone. You see, if if we come to church, most of us spend something like an hour and a half to maybe five hours a week together. Strong, deep bonds aren't formed in one and a half to five hours a week together. We must get better about spending time in each other's homes. We must get better about sharing meals together. We must get better about celebrating the good times together and mourning the bad times together. Because it's only then that we'll be the kind of family that God calls us to be and the kind of family that will help each other get through the inevitable crises that are going to occur in each of our lives. So we need to be together and we need to be a strong, cohesive 
family with a deep love for each other and a deep love for God. So that's my invitation this morning for all of us. It's this. Strengthen your faith now. Look at God's mighty acts. His mighty acts of the past, his mighty acts of the present, and look forward to his mighty acts in the future. And especially look to the cross where God demonstrated once and for all that he is on our side. And I invite you to talk to God. Pray continually, pray frequently, pray during good times, pray during bad times. Talk to your Father who loves you. And I want to encourage you to listen to God. Be in His Word. Listen to Him speak to you. Be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters because God will speak through them to you as well. And listen to the Spirit who lives within you. Learn to recognize God's voice during the good times. Then you'll be able to recognize his voice during the difficult times. And I invite you to surround yourself with the righteous. Surround yourself with a family of God. So that we can be the family that God intends us to be. And then we'll all be able to find joy and hope in our Lord in all circumstances, good and bad. And if we can help you in any way, I invite you to come forward as we stand as we sing our next song.